Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we're going to discuss the reign of Muhammad al-Amin ibn Harun al-Rashid, the sixth Abbasid to rule over the Ummah. Having been named his father's heir at the tender age of five, he considered the throne his birthright, and he looked forward to inheriting it with great anticipation. When he was sixteen, however, his half-brother Al-Ma'mun was declared his immutable successor, and the checks imposed on his authority as a result of this arrangement chafed at the young caliph, or to be more precise, at his coterie of advisers. Egged on by their counsel, it wasn't long until he tried to take full control of the caliphate. Episode 55 Al-Amin As we follow our sources into the final years of Harun al-Rashid's reign, a sense of impending disaster grows distinctly palpable. It's not all doom and gloom, and there are plenty of amusing and light-hearted accounts to be found, but every now and then we come across a narration in which the speakers seem to clearly foresee the coming conflict. The war between al-Amin and al-Ma'mun was a momentous development for the caliphate, and it left a strong mark on the oral material. The histories we're going through, the earliest non-religious ones to survive in full, were all written in the decades following Al-Ma'mun's reign. Given their foreknowledge of what's about to take place, we should expect some distortion, things like one-dimensional characters or signs of divine providence. Another consequence of the coming fitna's magnitude is that it dominates coverage of Al-Amin's reign, barely leaving any room for other subjects. But before getting into this fateful contest between the two half-brothers, we'll begin where we usually do when we have a new caliph, with a description of his childhood and upbringing. As the son of Harun al-Rashid and Zubaydah bin Ja'far, Muhammad al-Amin had purely Abbasid ancestry. This noble lineage and Zubaydah's influence on the caliph were enough to ensure that he would become the royal heir. He was officially named to the position at the age of five, technically at the expense of his slightly older brother Al-Ma'mun. The two were raised jointly in Zubaydah's palace, and the few depictions we find of the pair are often derisive of Al-Amin and admiring of Al-Ma'mun. This is partly due to the distortion we just mentioned. But honestly, a lot of the scorn heaped upon Al-Amin seems to have been well-earned. Even the best descriptions of the young prince can't help but veer off into the unflattering. One goes, He was the finest picture of youth, fair, tall, handsome, so powerful and courageous that he once killed a lion with his bare hands, and an eloquent man of polished refinement. But he was also imprudent, extravagant, weak-willed, thoughtless, and unfit for office, end quote. We don't have much attesting for his strength and courage, but we do find quite a few examples to back the less fawning descriptions of Al-Amin's character, especially when it comes to his extravagant tastes. 
One especially memorable splurge came in the form of five personal watercraft the young prince had built for himself, in the shapes of a lion, a hawk, a snake, an elephant, and a horse. Apparently, they were all opulent, wonderful, and very expensive, and our sources even quote a poem describing how the young prince would sail these boats on the Euphrates as the people looked on from the shores in awe. Al-Amin increasingly neglected his responsibilities as he grew up, preferring to spend his time playing with servant boys and eunuchs instead. Much of the material we find on him is about entertainment with his personal retinue, and it quickly becomes clear that Al-Amin was far more interested in recreation than government. Even after discounting the harshest accounts, he comes off as spoilt, deeply irresponsible, and quick to rely upon his mother's many helpers for the fulfillment of his duties. This dependence brought him closer to some prominent hangers-on, most important of whom was the caliph's hajib, al-Fadl ibn Rabia, who had a plain interest in building a positive relationship with the upcoming caliph. Job security was not the only thing on Fadl's plate, though. In fact, his role as hajib had become more important since the downfall of the Baramika. Left without his family of gifted administrators, Harun al-Rashid had to delegate some of their responsibilities to other servants and officials, and al-Fadl ibn Rabia picked up a lot of that prestigious slack. Having won the War of the Wonks, he had sort of become the caliph's latest wazir. Here's a fun fact. There's no queen in chess when you're playing in Arabic. As in the original Hindi, the most powerful piece on the board is the prime minister, or wazir. The two cultures also agree that the bishop ought to actually be an elephant, but that's taking us away from the point I wanted to make. Together, we have charted the rise of the wazir as the caliphate developed into more of a medieval empire. Al-Mansur never used one, but his state had complicated bureaucracies run by capable folks. His son wasn't nearly as hands-on, and he grew accustomed to having the men his father had hired administer things on his behalf. Al-Mahdi went through a couple different wazirs, as the competition for the role occasionally propelled a new man to the top. It wasn't until his son Al-Rashid that the position of wazir gained its near-mythic prominence within the caliphate. The Baramika's role during his reign made them a perfect analogue for the chess piece. By simply attaching themselves to the ruler, they had come to control the entire state a privilege they more or less maintained for 16 years. Having witnessed their meteoric rise to previously unimaginable power, other ambitious men were keen to repeat it, and Fadl ibn Rabia thought he had a pretty good shot at becoming the next Yahya al-Barmaki. The last thing we need to do before we can get started with al-Amin's reign is to kill off his father, narratively speaking, of course. The volatile situation makes it important that we re-establish the context of what was going on before he died. As has repeatedly been the case, it's all about Khurasan. You'll remember that Al-Rashid's final governor of the province was the leader of the Abna, Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan. His rapacious methods led to great unrest and booming discontent, but for years the caliph chose to ignore the situation. 
That's not fair, actually. He had gone to speak to Ibn Mahan a couple times, the latest of which was a trip to Rai the caliph undertook in 805, but the governor gave such generous gifts that al-Rashid found it hard to remember what the problem was. This official indifference lasted 11 years, from 796 to 807, and ended only after the governor failed to quell yet another rebellion sparked by his brutal heavy-handedness. It was led by Rafi' ibn Layth ibn Nasr ibn Sayyar, grandson of the final Umayyad governor of Khurasan, and another reminder of his enduring popularity in the region. Al-Rashid sent another general of his, Harthama, with reinforcements to replenish the Ummah's exhausted armies and orders to replace Ibn Mahan and send him back to the capital. The governor was caught by surprise, and once home he was berated by the caliph, then thrown into his dungeons. In 809, Al-Rashid decided to personally lead an army of 40,000 to Khurasan. He had two goals to firmly establish control of the province by defeating Rafa's rebellion, and to transfer the bulk of his armies to al-Ma'mun's control in the east. Al-Rashid fell ill early on this journey, however, and his condition only worsened as he made his way to the distant province. News of his failing health quickly reached al-Amin, as there were many in the caliph's circles who were eager to ingratiate themselves with their upcoming liege. This is when we are told Al-Amin made his first move towards establishing full control of the Caliphate. Considering that his father may not recover from his disease, he sent a man with secret orders for the commanders assembled with the Caliph, basically telling them to march the soldiers back home where they would all be under Al-Amin's control. Now this directly contravened Al-Rashid's wishes, and so the messenger had to hide this information from the Caliph and pretend to just be some well-wisher sent by his remotely doting heir, something which proved dangerously difficult. Harun al-Rashid was no fool, and he was immediately suspicious of his son's envoy. He ordered the man to reveal his true intentions, then had him searched, tortured, and after finding absolutely nothing on him, he had the messenger arrested. Al-Rashid's army had covered a thousand miles on its way to Maru before the caliph was too ill to move any further, somewhere near the city of Tus in northeastern Iran today. When he realized he wouldn't be able to cover the last 250 miles to his intended destination, the caliph assembled his commanders and made them pledge to fulfill the mission they had set out on, to relieve the Khurasani armies, stamp out the rebellion, and remain loyal to his son Al-Ma'mun. He passed away late in March 809, at the age of 43, after an operation his personal doctor performed failed to heal him. As soon as Al-Amin's incarcerated servant heard the news, he pulled out the upcoming caliph's orders, which had apparently been written on unusual parchment and sewn into the backs of some mundane lists of food which his interrogators had overlooked. There were two sets of orders. One meant for the assembled armies, the other for al-Ma'mun and Khurasan. To al-Amin's credit, neither one sought to upend the order of succession their father had established, and they called for pledges to be taken for the three brothers as outlined in the Meccan contract al-Rashid had drawn up for them. 
but the orders for the assembled commanders to return presented them with a dilemma. Which caliph should they obey, the dead one or the new one? Here we are told that Fadl ibn Rabia played a decisive role. As the caliph's hajib, he held great authority during a transfer of power, and he said that he, quote, would not rebuff the ummah's caliph for a man whose fate remains unknown. To clarify, by the ummah's caliph, he meant al-amin, and the man whose fate remained unknown was al-ma'mun. As hajib, Fadl ibn Rabi'ah was always going to return to the capital to be by the caliph's side, but his flagrant bias for al-amin gave everyone license to simply forget about the promise they had just made to al-Rashid on his deathbed and they all turned around and went back home. Al-Ma'mun was furious when he heard that the armies he was expecting had chosen to abandon their mission. Despite receiving a conciliatory letter from Al-Amin, grieving their father's death and asking him to take pledges and so on, he saw his half-brother's gambit for what it was. We're told that he contemplated taking military action to force the armies back, a terrible idea that would have started a fight that he was in no way ready for, but that his wazir talked him out of it. Al-Ma'mun's most trusted advisor was a man named Fadl ibn Sahil, which is awfully inconvenient as I don't want you to ever mistake him for his counterpart, Al-Amin's Hajib, Fadl ibn Rabi'ah. We don't know much about Fadl ibn Sahil, just that he and his brother Hassan were from the rich farmlands of Iraq. They had benefited from the Baramika's patronage back when they were on top, then somehow transferred to Al-Ma'mun's staff after their disgrace. Some accounts say they were the ones who had advised Al-Ma'mun to rush to Khurasan ahead of his father so that he could secure himself in a command position before Al-Amin had any say in the matter. We'll be hearing a lot about these two brothers in the next couple episodes, so try to commit Hassan and Fadl ibn Sahil to memory as Al-Ma'mun's trusted assistants. Thanks to Fadl ibn Sahil's peaceable advice, there was no outsized response from Khurasan to the caliph's slick recalling of the armies. The Ummah remained united, and our sources have accounts describing gifts sent from Al-Ma'mun to Al-Amin, indicating that the two half-brothers were still on good terms. We should make use of this lull in the contest between them to talk about what else was going on at the time in Iraq and Khurasan. We'll start with the caliph in Baghdad, as this is his episode. It had become customary by this point for new caliphs to hand out some cash upon their ascension, usually just to the members of the royal guard. Well, the prodigal al-Amin went above and beyond. He ordered all soldiers, officials, and palace staff be awarded two whole years' salary in full. This made the caliph immensely popular for a while, but it did nothing to fix the reputation he had for ruinous immoderation, a far bigger challenge to his public profile. In case there was any doubt, the impression that he was a frivolous young man was further reinforced following his orders for the construction of a large playing field adjacent to the royal palace, and for the various provinces to forward their most skilled entertainers to the capital for his appraisal and enjoyment. His behavior makes it clear that Al-Amin's idea of what it meant to be in charge was no work and all play. 
something which deeply hindered his ability to inspire confidence in his followers down the line. These early mistakes seem to all be a consequence of the caliph's youth and inexperience. It's worth remembering that his father al-Rashid had also inherited the throne at around the same age, 22 years old, and that he avoided immature policy-making by relying entirely on his mother in matters of administration, the politically adept al-Khaizuran. While al-Amin and his mother Zubayda had always been close, his new role came between them, as he refused to share power with anyone. This took a few months, however. And before we shut her out for good, let us say a bit more about the caliph's mother. Immediately following her son's ascension, Zubaydah went on a religious trip to Mecca, both to thank God for her good fortune and to survey the many improvements she had made to the pilgrimage road. Al-Amin sent almost a hundred kilograms of gold with her for gilding the Kaaba, arguably a far more sensible splurge than his other indulgences. One aspect of Zubaydah's that we have ignored entirely so far is her charity work, which is actually what she is most renowned for. She is credited with setting up various buildings and foundations in our sources, even the rebuilding of Shiraz after an earthquake. But her biggest contributions to the Ummah were the many investments she made towards the upkeep of Islam's holiest shrines and her patronage of the pilgrimage road from Iraq. She built ten way stations alongside it, complete with water wells, pools, shelters, and places for worship. It was a staggering upgrade, especially important for the poorest Muslims, who had no option but to walk the thousand miles to Mecca. Darb Zubayda, or Zubayda's path, unfortunately fell into disrepair with the decline of Iraq a few hundred years later. But recent renovations and its potential listing as a UNESCO World Heritage Site means it may resurface as an important part of her legacy. On top of her efforts to maintain the pilgrimage road and her repair of various holy shrines, Zubaydah devoted great amounts of her time and money towards improving the waterworks of Mecca. When she and her late husband found the city in a state of drought on a pilgrimage they undertook together in 805, she made it her mission to remedy the city's persistent lack of water. Wells were dug across the surrounding area, up to 20 kilometers away, tapping into springs and reservoirs, which ultimately brought water to Mecca through underground aquifers. These improvements far outlasted the ones she made to the road from Iraq, and they benefited pilgrims throughout the centuries, up to the dawn of modernity. While none of this relates to the caliph in any measure, I couldn't help but carve out some space for Zubaydah. It's rare for women to break into these early histories, and for one to emerge with so many positive accounts is almost unheard of. That said, there's plenty of negative material on Zubaydah as well, like descriptions of her as a scheming wife who destroyed the Ummah by making her weak husband install her incompetent son as its caliph. Others point out her own lavish tastes, and the impact she had on coddling Al-Amin. Fair points, to be sure. While Zubaydah was far from perfect, she at least knew politics better than her heedless son, and we're told that she tried to counsel him on more than one occasion. It was to no avail, however. Al-Amin not only upbraided her for her interference, but he also barred her from political life. 
From then on, she busied herself with her many significant assets and projects, but kept away from her son and his growing catastrophe of a reign. Most of the remaining material we find on Al-Amin is related to the coming conflict in one way or another. While it might be poor storytelling to separate the build-up from the action, I think it's a good idea for us to cover everything up until troops are mobilized today and leave the fighting for next time. As with all instances of fitna, there is plenty of dissension and contradiction to be found in narrations on the chaotic period, so keep in mind that a lot of what I am about to say is disputed, and as always I'll rely on the most widely reported accounts to try and construct a coherent narrative. Even worse than Al-Amin's reckless spending and his refusal to listen to those who actually wanted what was good for him were the caliph's choices of new governors. These weren't uniformly terrible, but Al-Amin had no appreciation for what made a good governor, and he had no qualms hiring whomever was politically expedient for the job. A particularly disastrous example came as he put a cousin of his in charge of Homs, one who caused an uproar that escalated into a bloody massacre of the local population the next year. But that's not even the worst of it. Almost certainly, on the advice of his Hajib al-Fadl ibn Rabia, al-Amin released two disgraced leaders who had been imprisoned by his father, Abdul Malik ibn Salih and Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan, the previous governors of the provinces his half-brothers now administered. The restoration of these men to power portended a turbulent future for the caliphate. That said, no dangerous development took place immediately upon their release. Ibn Mahan joined Al-Amin's clique of sycophants and yes-men, and Abdul Malik was sent back to duty in Syria. Perhaps because he had mentored Al-Mu'tamin before being jailed by Al-Rashid for allegedly plotting against him, his return to the scene does not seem to have been too disruptive. While some accounts portray it as a violation by the caliph against his half-brother, Abdul Malik's assignment as governor of the borderlands with the Byzantines, the provinces Al-Mu'tamin had been bequeathed, could have well been welcomed by the young prince, who continued to play an active role in their defense and administration. In the year 810, however, Al-Amin turned up the pressure against Al-Mu'tamin. Dissatisfied with Abdul Malik ibn Salih, the caliph now chose Khuzayma ibn Khazim as the new overall commander and governor of his domains in Syria. To make sure his half-brother was removed from all official duties, he ordered him to return to the capital where he could be kept under surveillance. We don't hear of any resistance on al-Mu'tamin's part and very little of him after his arrival in Baghdad. Sidelining al-Mu'tamin seems to have been an easy task for al-Amin's advisors, but it should be obvious that the one they were truly worried about was al-Ma'mun. Al-Rashid had practically put him on par with the caliph in that public ceremony in Mecca, and their vision of centralizing power in their hands meant that al-Ma'mun had to be taken out. To their credit, the caliph's circle had valid reasons to think it was a good time to move against the governor of Khurasan. He had only been in the job for about a year, and his position was already exceedingly fragile. 
In his small camp, all he had were some advisers and a few thousand men in the provincial capital of Maru. Herthama's battalion was still chasing after Rafael's rebel movement further east, and there's no consensus on what exactly was going on, but the situation was going to take some time to resolve. Deprived of the reinforcements that had accompanied al-Rashid, the Ummah's Khurasani armies were pretty evenly matched with the locals. So al-Ma'mun had nowhere near the level of necessary resources to forcefully pacify this hostile province, let alone fight off the caliphate. This is where most histories explicitly bring up the caliph's hajib and closest advisor, Fadl ibn Rabia. We are told he incessantly nagged al-Amin about installing his son, Musa, as next in line for the throne. Al-Tabari tells us that the caliph wasn't interested at first, and that he resisted the advice for months before eventually succumbing to pressure from his many hangers-on, pressure orchestrated by his wily hajib. Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan and Fadl ibn Rabia are both heavily implicated in this decision, which marks their second endeavor at upending Abbasid succession plans in their favor. Nothing brings out the power of a wazir like a weak and distracted caliph. In order to install his son as next in line, Al-Amin had to get his governors to endorse the idea publicly in their respective provinces. And there was no way Al-Ma'mun was going to just write himself out of history like that. So while all the other governors got letters from Fadl ibn Rabia ordering them to mention the caliph's son Musa as an heir in their Friday prayers, Al-Ma'mun got a diplomatic mission of three Abbasids who hoped to convince him to step down in favor of his nephew. While this was rejected outright in Khurasan, Fadl ibn Sahil did manage to recruit one of the envoys as a spy in Al-Amin's court, so the affair ended up benefiting Al-Ma'mun indirectly. It was obvious that he had to prepare for war from then on, however. And in this matter too, Al-Ma'mun had the benefit of his creative advisor, Fadl ibn Sahil. Some accounts say that Fadl and his brother Hassan converted to Islam late in Harun al-Rashid's reign, having until then been fervently attached to their Zoroastrian roots. There's not a lot of material to support this claim, but perhaps it explains why they were quick to find a new paradigm which others had missed. The way they saw it, Al-Ma'mun and the people of Khurasan both shared the same problem, intimidation from Abbasid Baghdad. In the succession plans Al-Rashid had drawn up in Mecca, he had bequeathed Al-Ma'mun autonomous control of Khurasan, granting the province the independence its people were fighting for. According to Fadl ibn Sahil, now that Baghdad was looking to assert its authority, everyone ought to resist its attempts at hegemony together. Al-Ma'mun either saw the wisdom in this approach or realized that it was his only move. Either way, a conciliatory attitude was adopted across the province and it paid off big time. The nobles came around after Fadl ibn Sahil cut good deals with them, and with their approval came the acceptance of the masses. Eventually, even Rafa was impressed by how well the locals were being treated, and he joined his movement to al-Ma'mun's forces. This unexpected turn of events is said to have infuriated al-Amin's advisors 
who continued to forge ahead with their plan to make Musa the official successor. Plenty of governors had responded to Fadl ibn Rabi'ah's call to proclaim the new succession on their pulpits, and the Hajib distributed three million dirhams to the Abna' in Musa's name. As if to cement this new order, the governor of Mecca was asked to forward the contracts that Rashid had made his children write back to the capital so the caliph could dramatically tear them to shreds. Al-Amin and other prominent members of his court declared that the succession was invalid on the grounds that it was a scheme concocted by the Baramika, who had convinced al-Rashid to nominate al-Ma'mun so they may take over the caliphate. Al-Fadl ibn Rabi'ah then went on the offensive by writing to the various city managers of Khurasan, trying to get them to turn on their governor. This eventually led to the dismissal of the man in charge of Rai, and al-Ma'mun decided to take the whole province dark by cutting off all correspondence with the rest of the caliphate. His move asserted independence and effectively neutralized Baghdad's ability to foment trouble in Khurasan, but it was an unequivocal escalation in the incipient conflict. We next hear about a series of increasingly angry letters exchanged between the two brothers. I'm not going to get into details, as it's best to avoid fanciful accounts during confusing periods like these. I've already skipped over an alleged assault by the caliph's thugs on al-Ma'mun's wife in the capital, and some prophetic dreams Zubaydah was having. I only mention these now to note how there's a noticeable uptick in narrations of this sort whenever fateful events are about to unfold. The final squabble mentioned in these letters was about the revenue of Khurasan, something which should automatically bring to mind Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan. This leader of the Abna had become a close advisor to Al-Amin, and he presented himself as the perfect solution to the caliph's contest with his half-brother. As an experienced military officer, he had the full confidence and support of the Abna, who could easily sweep away Al-Ma'mun's minuscule forces. His previous stint in charge of the province had shown just how much revenue he could extract as well, making him an ideal candidate for the position once the current governor had been deposed. Who better for the caliph to turn to, now that the Abna were clamoring for their rightful share of Khurasan's revenue? In late March of 811, Al-Amin officially designated Ali ibn Isa ibn Mahan as governor of a huge chunk of Al-Ma'mun's domain. A massive army of 40,000 was assembled and expensively equipped for his command. He was then provided with some silver shackles to be used on the caliph's half-brother following his inevitable arrest. With ibn Mahan's bravado, and Fadl ibn Rabi'ah's sweet assurances of a swift victory, Al-Amin must have felt confident there was nothing to worry about because, true to form, he proceeded to ignore the entire affair and focus on his own amusement instead. It is deeply ironic that Al-Rashid went to such great lengths to try and foolproof his succession, only to have it derailed by the two exact same men who had conspired against him back in the day. I never really understood why he pardoned Ibn Mahan and Fadl ibn Rabi'ah to begin with, 
nor why he rehabilitated them after Al-Ghazuran had intentionally kept them away from power. I get wanting to have an alternative to the Baramika, just to diversify and not have all your eggs in one basket. But one would think there were firmer baskets within the Caliphate. We shouldn't forget that Al-Rashid imprisoned Ibn Mahan in 807, but it was too little, too late, as Al-Amin managed to quickly restore him to his former standing and use him as a weapon against his brother, probably at his hajib's behest. Most accounts consider Fadl ibn Rabia as the chief instigator of the conflict between the brothers, and he was unambiguously empowered by al-Rashid. He seems to have held absolute authority for a spell, though only by dint of knowing how to manage al-Amin to his favor. Not to keep blaming al-Rashid, but it's crazy that he didn't realize how much control his experienced hajib was going to wield over his son. Next time, we'll witness the disastrous consequences of this influence together, here on The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. Mm-hmm.